Legendarium Podcast. I am Craig Hanks, your host, and this is an episode that I am extremely excited for. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. They say never met, never meet your heroes. Well, uh, well, they can, they can go. You know what? Uh, because today I have with me John Garth, uh, one of my favorite uh, Tolkien authors. I came across his uh, his first Tolkien book, as far as I know, it was Tolkien and the Great War, published back in I want to say two thousand three. Um, and That's I fun. have been following what you've been doing loosely uh, and from afar ever since. And uh, and and thrilled to have you on the show. You're a, a journalist. You are a, a writer. You're a reviewer. You are an author. You're all of the things that uh, that that I that I can appreciate. So, John Garth, welcome to the Legendarium. Oh, thank you very much indeed, Craig. Good to meet you and. Hi, everyone. <laughs> so, John Garth, like I said, you um, you write on many, many different subjects, as a journalist is going to do. But I did want to talk with you today about, about Tolkien, about your work uh, vis-a-vis Tolkien, about our shared, uh, I, I don't know if obsession is too strong a word, but fascination with the man and his works. Uh, and so we're going to be having kind of a, a free-ranging discussion today, but why don't we just start with how you got onto this this topic, how you started writing about Tolkien, why you started writing about Tolkien, and your own fascination with him. Oh, it's, it's, um, it's a well-told story, I'm afraid. <laughs> so some of your listeners <laughs> will have heard this before, but I, I read The Lord of the Rings when I was nine. Um, I, it was on, on my mother's bookshelf. Um, I was fascinated by it because I'd already read the Narnia books and several others that, you know, fantasy books for kids with maps, with curious names, you know, um, and they all had that Tolkien-esque a- atmosphere because they'd all been influenced by Tolkien, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so this book looked like both an enticement and a temptation and a challenge, you know, because it was huge, much bigger than anything I ever contemplated reading. Um, but yeah, one one day at the age of nine, I picked it up um, and never really looked back. Read it many times in the first few years. Um, and then it ended up sort of following in Tolkien's footsteps, though I have to say not quite so successfully in that I went to Oxford University and studied English there. Um, I did not pursue the the hardcore medieval uh, language and literature uh, side of things that Tolkien um, stood behind. Mm. Um, so I got a, but I got a very good understanding of the development of English literature over uh, from the Anglo-Saxon poetry, such as Beowulf, all the way through to the 20th century. Um, nice and varied. But I came out of that with a sense that um, I couldn't really understand why I valued Tolkien so much. And I was starting to wonder whether it was just sort of sentimental, you know, because I'd read him when I was so young. Mm. And I've been reading people like, I don't know, James Joyce and Shakespeare and, you know, these people who were incredibly uh, stylistically uh, upfront, you know, mm-hmm. boldly in your face, stylistically inventive, right? And, and Tolkien, actually, he, he is, but I didn't appreciate that he was because I got used to that so early on. So when he writes in, you know, these medieval registers, that's a really bold move. And it's, especially to do it in such a way that so many people can still read it and enjoy it, you know, and it doesn't spoil attention. So, you know, if I'd have had the perspective that I have now, I wouldn't have had any problem understanding why I love Tolkien. But what it took was reading Tom Shippey's magnificent um, study of, of Tolkien and the role played by philology, his academic dis- discipline, the study of the development of languages, the role played by philology on his creative imagination. Uh, that's what finally made me realise that, you know, my my English literature degree simply hadn't really equipped me with the kind of tools you need to understand why Tolkien works. Um, was it 
with Tom Shippey, uh, was that one of his, was it his kind of entire body of work around Tolkien at the time, or was it uh, The Road to Middle-Earth or one of those specific it was the road things? To, it was The Road to Middle-Earth, yeah. Um, yeah. It, and, you know, it, it's it's very wide-ranging, but it keeps coming back to that, that, that rootedness in language. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, ju- I just found it uh, really eye-opening. So then, you know, the, the, the things that were then going on were um, three. Uh, the History of Middle-earth volumes were now being published more or less annually, um, which was a real treat, and I just devoured them. Uh, and principally, to be honest, I was devouring them for the Elvish rather than, rather than for the stories, because a lot, a lot of the time we're just looking at, you know, different versions of the same story. Um, but loads of new language in there that I hadn't encountered before. I, I literally used to dream when I was a kid about, you know, discovering Tolkien's, you know, some, some so, box in a garage with all of the grammar of Elvish, you know, um, <laughs> in bookshops. Anyway, uh, so there was that going on. And then on the other side, there was this sort of lingering sense that, um, well, I might now have come to understand why Tolkien was valuable, valuable, but the rest of the world had not. And the one mm. thing that constantly bugged me was the idea that he was just a whimsical escapist. He was just there to entertain people who were too stupid to look at the real world, you know. Um, and that just didn't chime with my experience at all because I was a journalist and I'd always been, you know, really interested in you know, not so much political issues, but you know, humanitarian issues, environmental sure. issues and so on. Um, and, oh, and at the age of 12, I decided, thanks to reading The Siege of Gondor, that I was a pacifist, which is something something Tolkien might not have intended. <laughs> um, but, you know, for it, to have that impact on a 12-year-old um, it shows I, I think it's, it's, you know, it, it's very thought-provoking, you know. And, yeah. Um, Oh well, that, that that is one of the things about his works, isn't it? And it's I think it's fair to say that Tolkien had a lot of unintended consequences for millions right. and millions of people. He had no idea that uh, you, you can read some of his notes and some of his letters where he goes and says, you know, I have these grand ambitions for my work, but he didn't really think <laughs> that it was going to have the right, kind absolutely. of the kind of not only wide ranging but deep effects that it had on people and it and it had many varying effects like that didn't it yeah absolutely and you know i mean my um my pacifism you know basically kind of shifted into something a bit more practical i suppose um mm. but nonetheless there's that th- sort of vein of it still running through me i just just the loathing at the idea of unnecessary war you know mm. um eventually then i w- these two things collided so my interest in elvish and this idea my my frustration with the idea that tolkien was an escapist who had nothing to say about the real world it collided when i was um at, at, at the same time, simultaneously reading some First World War novels about the trenches and the you know awful experiences that people had in them, uh, and reading the Book of Lost Tales and being very aware that Tolkien was either training or in the trenches when he was writing some of this early poetry and inventing you know working on his his Quenya Elvish language. Mm. So um, that's when I really decided that I was going to start on this. Um, this I did it, not think for those for those listening and not watching. He's holding up Tolkien Sorry. and the Great War. Yes, my I have my my well worn copy here, um, and uh, you you published that in two thousand three, right? So two thousand three, yeah. So, but but I'm talking about ninety seven. I think it was when I had this this sudden urge to start researching this stuff. And all I wanted to do was write a, an article for a fanzine, you know. Um, I wasn't <laughs> it conscious. Got a, it got a bit out of hand, not, didn't it? it <laughs> within three months, I'd written 40,000 words. You know, a, a, a fanzine <laughs> article would be, what, at most about 1,000. So, yeah. Um, 
I, I really did get carried away. And f- some friends of mine in the British Tolkien Society, um, the great David Duggan and the equally great Charles Node, uh, read what I'd written and, and they said, look, you know, you've got a really good book here in the making. Um, so um, the, uh, the the final stage essentially was that the that Peter Jackson announced the Lord of the Rings movies and suddenly I saw that there was really an opportunity to mm. go to publishers and say, I've got this up my sleeve. So I went to Tolkien's publisher, HarperCollins in Britain, and and they were really keen. So, yeah. It's amazing when timing works out like that. <laughs> and uh, at, judging by the state of, uh, of shelves at bookstores here in the US, I, I'm, I'm sure it was similar in the UK, but I, I don't know for sure. It, it got to the point around 2002 to 2004 maybe that there would be not just a shelf dedicated to Tolkien but entire cases entire bookcases uh where they were they were throwing everything they could on those shelves and so as you say the history of middle earth had been you know coming out for a few years and uh i think they were wrapped up at that point uh but you could find every volume of the history of middle earth at barnes and noble for heaven's sake um you know and so many collections of essays and um you know treatments and and all of that but not many biographies and yours was as far as i know the first major biography to come out since 1977 when the the official humphrey carpenter authorized biography right so so it's essentially every biography that had come out prior to mine um seemed to be a retread of carpenter Hmm. bringing in a little bit more from you know newspaper cuttings and interviews with tolkien and things like that you know really not a great advance and i i found that very frustrating and I, i i wanted to read a book you know, I always actually, because I was a teenage Tolkien fan, it sounds like a B-movie title, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> I always think back to what I would have wanted when I was a teenager um, and how avid I would have been for something that, you know, made me think, made me feel um, and and delivered new stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, so that's exactly what I tried to do. I really um, looked at Carpenter, I wouldn't say last of all, but I tried to source virtually everything uh, from outside Carpenter, which meant, you know, go, going first of all to military records, looking at Tolkien's service record as an army officer and those of his friends, and the the um, the war diaries that were written by the the army battalions in the trenches. These you know pencil today's events sort of things, um, and uh, and then. Ultimately, th- through uh, the fact that HarperCollins was going to be my publisher, the door opened for me to look at mm. some of the um, restricted materials held by um, the Tolkien estate. So uh, I was able to read and use the letters between Tolkien's um, friends in the, the TCBS, the Tea Club mm-hmm. and Barovian Society, who were... Uh, which they started at school, but which became a kind of, you know, a brotherhood of young men going to war and uh, supporting each other and kind of exploding with a uh, bad choice of word, I'm sorry, but, you know, <laughs> blooming with ideas um, about <laughs> art and creativity and, you yeah. know, uh, art with a moral foundation, you know, um, which they all felt very strongly about. So um, that, you know, being and, able to, was, to read those letters. Go on, sorry. No, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was going to go off. Uh, I was going to follow that rabbit, but uh, it can it can wait. Uh, but you well, got I was to... just going to say, being, being able to read those letters gave gave my book, you know, its pulse, its, um, its life force, I think. Well, and it's, first of all the idea that um you know you got access to those documents that uh, the, the general public can only wonder about you know i'm sure we have thousands of <laughs> tolkien fans now salivating at the idea of uh rummaging through the documents that the estate holds <laughs> so i'm sure that was uh 
uh, I'm sure that was a delight for you. I'm sure it would have been for me as well. Um, I, I, what, what do I, there, there are so many directions now that you've got my brain wanting to go. Uh, but let me, let's stick with Tolkien and the Great War for a moment. We're going to talk about your other books. You've, you've got some others that we definitely want to mention. In fact, there's one that's uh, getting a revision just now. So there's your professional tease, everybody. We'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, but with Tolkien and the Great War, I'll tell you one thing that, that I like about it. Um, or, or I, I, one thing I like about it, the main thrust of the thing that I like about it is that it's so focused uh, that it's not the story of his entire life. Uh, you know, obviously things from earlier and later in his life, they, they're touched on, they come into play a little bit, but it is focused around that extremely pivotal time in his life from his, what, late teens to his maybe mid twenties, something like that. So that, and that's, it's a pivotal time in almost everyone's life, that transition from, uh, from childhood to adulthood, but so what turned out to be such a remarkable man going through what turned out to be among the most remarkable things that happened in the 20th century, namely mm -hmm. the trench warfare in France. Um, it's it, I, I encourage everyone to read this book. And I, I don't just mean right now. I mean, in random conversations that I have with people I don't know, I encourage them to read this book in part because, uh, because Tolkien's story is so fascinating, but also in part because for me, it gave me a window that I hadn't had previously into uh, World War One, and seeing it through the lens of somebody that I cared about, uh, namely Tolkien, but, but kind of peeking through a window into a world that I hadn't explored much. And for that reason, like I said, strangers on the bus, yes, but also everybody listening right now, I really encourage everybody to to pick up the book and give it a shot. Um, yeah, so, so one of the most gratifying things for me is to find that, you know, um, people who aren't Tolkienists really have really enjoyed it, including historians, First World War historians like Martin Gilbert. Um, I don't know if his name... It, it has a, has a lot of traction in the US, but I suspect so. Um, and uh, well, just just quite a few others. I, I suddenly hear, learn perhaps by email through someone else or whatever that that they have read my book and they love it. And I think it it did have a kind of effect, a bit like reading Shippy had on me, where a lot of people realised suddenly why Tolkien was making sense to them, and also realised that it wasn't actually uncool or embarrassing to say, you know, this stuff is really interesting literature. And, and, and here's why this guy lived through the trenches and it helped to build his mythology, you know, that's important stuff. So there's no shame in it anymore, you know? Um, no, it's a, the, the um, line that I come back to a lot and that I share with people when, you know, they'll ask why, why do you love Tolkien so much? Well, First of all, the books are wonderful, and uh, and and it is delightful to lose myself in enjoying the stories. That's all fine, uh, but I come back to Shippy's other title uh, that came out a little earlier. I think um, the book was J.R.R. Tolkien, Author of the Century, and he makes a point in his introduction to say, "I did not title this book the Author of the Century." The point was not that here is the best writer, here is the best book to ever you know, be published in that 100 year span. His point was, if you want to understand the 20th century, Tolkien is a vital author for you to read. Uh, his understanding of, of the events around him during his life was, his understanding was a little bit different and his presentation of it was, was different in such a way that he's, he is valuable to read as an author of that century, right? Anyway, um, and now I've uh, where, wherever that train of thought was going, we'll just we'll just run. <laughs> <so. laughs> one one other thing I wanted to pick up on from what you were saying earlier um, is that you, you were talking about that you you like the fact that Tolkien and the Great War has this close focus mm. um, on the war years, and that that was something that was really well that was a that was a given but it was part of my 
desire to just give you a really deep, intense dive into someone else's experience. And as a biographer, that's a that's a just an enormous um, challenge and pleasure to be able to you know get across. Um, so and also, it's a kind of group biography of these four friends, isn't it? Um, so I, I'm trying to get you to walk in the shoes of four different characters mm. and see them seeing each other and communicating with each other, see them looking at Tolkien, see what Tolkien looked like to them, to, to, to his dearest friends, the first fans of Middle Earth, you know. Um, so, I, yeah, it was um, it was a, quite a tricky book to pull off. Um, but I, I'm really pleased that it's got legs, you know. Oh, it, 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 it's, you mentioned before we started, and we'll probably get into this, that there are, there's new information that makes some things in it out of date. And, but that being said, it holds up. It's a wonderful read. I still encourage, you know, 19 years later, everybody should read it. Uh, but I wanted to ask you a, a very specific question, which is your, your background is in journalism. Um, and let, let me set up this question by saying, I know that a lot of the listeners of this podcast are authors, uh, you know, uh, novelists or aspiring novelists. You know, they, they love writing fantasy and science fiction and, and all of that stuff. I, I, for one, am, uh, I've been steeped in short form, you know, internet writing for a long time, marketing and, and uh, you know, whatever. We don't have to get into all that stuff. But it's all, it, these, are, these are very different types of writing. Journalism is, again, a, a very specific type of writing. Do you feel like that, that your background in journalism had an effect on how you were able to pursue this story, um, you know, versus if you're coming at it as a quote unquote, um, you know, lifelong biographer, you know, we have writers who are biographers, or if you were simply a fan of the works um, and and wanted to dive into them as, you know, a, a lay person becoming an expert. Does, did your background in journalism affect how you went about writing this and uh, what, what sort of sources yeah. you looked for? Kind of, kind of. I mean, essentially, you know, if it, if it had been a biography of a living person, then I would have been able to, you know, hmm. pull out more journalistic tools sure interviewing people and so on it was too far back in time to do that um being keen on investigating it's not that far from being off being just a biographical researcher anyway so there's yeah. you know that was where i got my training there it was it was in in newspaper reporting oh and also in something that was also originally tolkien inspired it was that, that, that when i was young i started researching my family history with my sister Oh. Um, and we've we've done and, and I, what what excited me was the idea that I'd be able to produce you know a Garth family tree that had that looked like the Baggins family tree or whatever right <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and and actually we got far further than that but that that's a long and complex and you know a, a bit of research that takes a lot of patience so that was a good bit of grounding the the key thing with with journalism for me was that it taught me how to write. It taught me how to write with immediacy, uh, to write as a craft, um, things that I had not learned at all. In fact, I'd kind of unlearned how to do that when I was a, an undergraduate writing essays. Uh, <laughs> Term papers. At Oxford University, because they were all very kind of theoretical and, you know, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Any, I probably anybody wouldn't who's been think through... much if I read them again now. You know, when I became a journalist, I had to unlearn all of that. I had to learn how to state the bleeding obvious um, and make it very, very clear and make everything logical, make it all flow, make the argument, um, you know, run as smoothly as possible. Um, so that's you know on a on a on a level of looking at say, uh, you know, three pages of writing, that was vital. But writing yeah. a book, of course, is a different challenge. There's a lot of structural stuff that has to go into it too. Well, let's shift gears um, and talk about some of your other stuff. Like I said, you you have other books. There was one that came out just a couple of years ago uh, in 
I, I shouldn't say in the middle of the pandemic. It was toward the beginning of the pandemic, actually. It was. Uh, it was. It was in, uh, in, in lockdown. The world in, of in... J.R.R. Tolkien. Sorry, what was that? Yeah. It was in lockdown in June 2020. So it came out in oh, Britain um, from a publisher called um, Francis Lincoln and in the US from Princeton University Press, which is very nice. Um, and astonishingly, it's now in, in about 16 languages two, two years is later. Is it really? Uh, wow yeah okay so yeah, yeah. and it's it's uh so the the worlds of jr are talking the the subtitle is the places that inspired middle earth um and in it you kind of take people on a journey all over the world you know to, to what africa and probably switzerland and i i it's been a while right. since i leafed through it like i said but uh yeah give us a little a little bit about this book so so th this idea was actually presented to me by one of my former journalistic colleagues a woman I used to work with at the, the London Evening Standard, uh, who now now writes um, very beautiful books about English gardens. And she said, oh, my publisher would love a book about places that inspire Tolkien, you know, big name, lots of English landscape. And I thought, it doesn't sound like that's for me. But then I, I thought about it. And, um, you know, it turned out that I had quite a lot of pre-prepared material because I've been researching ever since I finished mm. Tolkien and the Great War um, and publishing papers on things like the Dead Marshes and so on, um, where where I talk about, you know, what in, inspired that. So I have various pegs that I could already, that were all ready to hammer in. Um, and I came up with a quick scheme for it, talked to the publisher, they loved the idea, um, and we roll with it. Um, so I take, I start off by talking about, you know, um, Tolkien coming to England, the impact of that green English landscape on this young boy who lived in the, you know, torrid heat of Southern Africa for his first three years. Um, and how he used to see, um, he used to see Africa overlaid on the English landscape, his grandparents' house. He would see it as a, a, a combination of his grandparents' house in England with the house he'd mm. been born in, in Southern Africa. Um, and I took this as a kind of sign. It's a sort of superpower. The, 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 the fact that Tolkien could see real places and, and imagine places or remember places and fuse them. So... A lot of what I'm writing about in this book is Tolkien's ability to to pick up inspiration from all kinds of various places and then fuse them or synthesize them into something that feels very new and very him. Um, yeah. So and, uh, what, what are some of the yeah. locations that you go through? So I, I, one that's really interesting, I talk about um, the, the town of Warwick, um, which is in the English West Midlands, mm. part of the, the area that Tolkien loved and felt ancestrally connected to through his mother's family, the Suffields, who had lived in that West Midlands area for centuries. Um, for, for those keeping track, this would be, um, uh, if you're watching the movies, that's where we got Sam Gamgee's accent, isn't it? Uh, from the, the West Midlands, kind of, but yeah. probably more yeah, of the yeah. countryside. Um, yes. So... Well, here's, here's an example I I'll mention now before I forget it. So I think that, that Tolkien wanted um, the Gamgees to have a little bit of his brother in mm. them, his brother Hilary, who was a farmer near the town of Evesham in the West Midlands uh, and who lived quite near... Um, a stretch of high hills that looked over his fertile little valley. Um, and at the top of those high hills, there's a tower called Broadway Tower, which has this fantastic view. And, you know, it's one of those things, there's no record of Tolkien visiting the place, um, but it, it ticks quite a few boxes, location, opportunity, taste. You know, it's this, this sort of Gothic mm. tower, connections, his brother, and also the fact that William Morris, one of his favourite writers, had lived in this tower. Um, so I think that when Tolkien plants Sam Gamgee's descendants at the foot of the Tower Hills west of the Shire, 
you know, there's a little bit of Hillary Tolkien and his family in there. Um, Interesting. But back, back to Warwick, and again, it's a family connection. <laughs> um, Tolkien got to know Warwick because his fiancée, uh, Edith Bratt, lived there during their courtship, during their in- engagement. Um, so she lived there from 1913 until they were married in 1916. And Tolkien drew sketches of the castle there and so on. But he also uh, incorporated Warwick in the first version of the Silmarillion, the Book of Lost Tales. He makes, he invented something that, that, a very familiar name to Lord of the Rings fans, the Lonely Isle of Tol Eresea. Mm. Um, when he first invented that, that was meant to be Britain in some lost past, a Britain that was ruled by elves and their capital was Cortirion, which is Warwick. This isn't me reading it into really? Tolkien. This is Tolkien stating absolutely clearly, <laughs> you know, this is, this is what was going on. Um, so he, for Warwick, he invented a, uh, a tower and a mound with trees on it and a, a queen of the elves who lives in this circle of trees on the mound. Um, and as it happens, um, the, the castle at Warwick, although it's not ancient, it's medieval, has a, a mound next to it, which is covered with trees, you know, and had a circular path walking up it. Um, and it's pretty clear to me that Tolkien was remodeling these medieval structures. The, the, even the mound was medieval. Um, it was artificial and turning them into myth. The mound was built by, uh, King Alfred's daughter, uh, Athelflaed, Athelfleda. Oh, Athelflaed, sorry. Yeah. So, some, sometimes known as. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that Tolkien took that as a cue to have, well, not an Anglo-Saxon queen, but an elven queen there. And I yeah. think some of Edith goes into her as well. Her name is Meryl Itrinqui. Meryl is reminiscent of Mary, which is Edith's middle name and course, um, the, the, the name of the Virgin Mary, very important to Tolkien. So one of the, the, the really interesting things that I then pursue is how Tolkien abandoned this whole concept, um, but um, resuscitated some of it, breathed new life into it by, by bringing aspects of this into Lothlorien. So there is the mound of Cerin Amroth with its circle of trees. And there is the, the elven queen Galadriel. And at Cerin Amroth, re- I find this, found this really touching when I, when it, I, I recognized it as a, you know, distinct possibility. When he describes, he, see, he describes Frodo seeing Aragorn as if he's a young man and he's speaking to someone that Frodo can't see. Um, and he's saying, uh, you know, Arwen van Imelda. Namarie, or whatever he says, I, I forget now. Um, you know, most beautiful Arwen, goodbye. Um, and I think that Tolkien is mythologizing his own relationship with Edith there, as he did in Beren and Luthien, the story of Beren and Luthien. Mm. You know, just a little touch of autobiography that isn't meant for us, isn't meant for anyone else, but it's just him putting his heart's blood into the story, you know. The- it's one of Tolkien's gifts, I think, as a as a writer, that he could do exactly what you're talking about: take a, a real world place, mythologize it, it, you know, infuse it with, um, well, or, or maybe the better word would be to to enchant it, um, or to re-enchant it, as he would say. <laughs> you know, the the modern world is disenchanted, and and I I will re-enchant it. So help me, um, and he had this gift of of pouring enchantment into something that might be considered mundane um and we as readers get to kind of take that back out into our own lives and it's it's remarkable the degree to which the lord of the rings and his other works um but the lord of the rings specifically can enchant your everyday life um if you it, does that make sense the way that that he was able to pour 
mythology into the real world, it kind of, it, it, uh, it still continues pouring out of those works for me. And I, I know I'm not the only one. Uh, yeah, it does. It does work. I mean, it works pretty obviously when, when I'm out in beautiful countryside, I've spent some time in the Lake District, um, which is, mm -hmm. you know, mountains, lakes, um, beautiful, beautiful area of England. And, you know, I'm looking at it and thinking, it's astonishing to me that Tolkien is not known to have come here because you look at it and you just think, oh, well, this is, you know, clearly part of Middle Earth, you know, and a lot of people have this kind of reaction. It's one of the problems actually with writing about places that inspire Tolkien is so many people have become fixated on the idea that their local area or the area they love um, is must have inspired Tolkien because it looks a bit like oh, Middle it's... Earth to them, you know. I, I lived for about a year in several places in uh, Brittany and Normandy in northern France. And you, you can't live there having read The Lord of the Rings and, and not go, oh, wow, I, I live in the Shire. I live in the Shire. And of course, it holds a lot of geographical similarities with uh, southern England, right? Um, but anyway, but it's, uh, I, I wasn't sure if, northern france was that thing but it you know it's it's at least fun to let it call these things to mind to to let your own locations um remind you of things from the stories right so even if it's even if it's not uh, technically correct uh, it's still fun to still fun to do it yeah it's still fun to have to make your own connections with the world right? of course no, and but this is this is it and uh, you know the, sorry to leap leap topics here but this is one of my frustrations with um cinema or tv representations of tolkien uh, adaptations of his works that um it's a really different experience looking through someone else's camera from looking through your own imagination or your own eyes you know, I'm sorry, I'm getting some kind of um, messages coming through here. I'm supposed sorry, to as long as it's to... not, uh, you know, an emergency alert that, uh, you know, some, uh, you know, yeah. hurricane is about to rip through the islands. <laughs> can, can, can we can we pause briefly the recording? Absolutely. Yeah, no worries. I'll, I'll just, just uh, create a marker here and lift this out. I just need to tell my daughter. Um, how long more do you think we've got? Oh, we uh, let's let's say 10, 15 minutes. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, where? Oh, uh... right. Okay. Where were we? You were, you were talking about frustrations with uh, somebody else's lens. Uh, yeah. Is there anything um, else you wanted to say on that? No, no, I think that'll do. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, but I, I, of... I can, oh. yeah. No, I can no, say no. something more about your, your, your comment about Tolkien, you know, re-enchanting the world and helping mm -hmm. us see the enchantment in it. Um, yeah, please. I, I've come more, more and more to feel that um, his, the, his, his creative spirit helped him to come through life with, with a healthy mind intact, despite the many tragedies he lived through, you know, personal tragedies, the loss of his parents when he was very young. And then, then the First World War, you know, losing his dearest friends and seeing just just being, you know, like everyone was at that stage, being an innocent hurled into, you know, the closest thing to hell on earth that had ever been. Um, so I think he gives some of us, some of that to us, you know, that the, the craft that helped him stay whole I, I don't want to say heal himself because uh, we don't know whether he suffered any kind of war trauma that would have been diagnosed as, mm. you know, post-traumatic stress disorder or anything like that. Um, but, I, you know, the, the power he used to, to keep himself together, I think, helps us too.
Isn't Especially when we I've never see, thought of it. Know, when we see, when we see, you know, tragedy in the world. When we see landscapes that have been despoiled, things like that. You know, it gives us, it gives us something to hold on to. It gives us something to hope for, to maybe to fight for. You know. Yeah, uh, or uh, even just a, a coping mechanism. Uh, right. In yeah. imagination as a coping mechanism i've never thought of it in quite those terms before that's very interesting well let's um let's get to the final the final thing that i want to talk about is uh, a book that you've written that you are you're revising it's getting a second edition coming out it's uh, tolkien right. at exeter college um, and i wanted to make sure that we talked about this speaking of uh, pivotal moments in in his life tolkien at exeter college tell us a little bit about this and um and uh, why there's a second edition, what you're doing with it. When I wrote Tolkien and the Great War, I had, had to stay very focused. And I was particularly telling the stories of those, those Tolkien's are part of a group of four friends. They had all been to one particular school in the city of Birmingham. This meant that when it got to talking about Tolkien's time as an Oxford student, I couldn't spend a lot of time talking about his life there uh, at his college, Exeter College, Oxford, uh, because that would have taken the focus off the other things that were going on. Um, I did talk about something very important that happened while he was there, which is, you know, this was the period when he first invented Middle Earth, when he first wrote about the character Erendil, the Star Mariner. Um, when he first devised the Elvish language Quenya, and when he first started hammering out his mythological concepts. That was in the year, um, the, the academic year, 1914 to 15, his final year at Oxford. So when I had the opportunity, I, I produced this work on Tolkien's time at Exeter College and, and his circle of friends there and what his life was like there. And it's, it's very different in flavour from Tolkien and the Great War. A lot of it's very, very funny because they were kind of goofy students, you know, um, having a having a laugh. And Tolkien was very, very funny at times. Um, so I have um, finally got around. That came out in 2014. I finally got to the point where I want to do a, a second edition you know, not, not a whole heap of revisions, um, but a nicer looking book, um, updating for material that has happened, that, that's come to light since, like material that appeared in um, the fantastic 2018 exhibitions at uh, the Bodleian Library in Oxford um, and the Morgan Library in New York. Um, so that's all in there now. And previously it's been a bit of a look like a kind of pamphlet with a black and white cover and so on. But, um, now it has a, a, a color cover. It's not in print yet. Uh, well, as, as we record this interview, it's not in print yet. Uh, but hopefully it will be by the time you hear this. Um, and the cover shows Tolkien, um, sitting among friends in a club that he called, he founded and called the Apollostics. Um, who were at, at Exeter College. Uh, and it's from a photograph with, gosh, how many young men are there in it? I forget now, eight, nine, something like that. Um, and most of them, most of them were killed in the war. So it's a kind of, it's a story, well, another story about a lost generation, you know. But it has, it has me revisiting what Tolkien did uh, to, to first invent Middle-earth. So, so the account in Tolkien Exeter College is somewhat more up-to-date on that point than the account in Tolkien and the Great War. So uh, worth having if you're keen on uh, finding out about that. Yeah, it's uh, sort of the next the next piece of the puzzle or, you know, or whatever other strained metaphor we want to use for a man's life. Um, right. And it, it, it's, a, I'd say, people who have read at least something about Tolkien. Uh, they, they're familiar with the loss of his two friends from the TCBS. Uh, they're familiar with that story, but not necessarily that th that wasn't the only loss that he experienced. He he had other friends. He had other acquaintances, people that um, that he mm. lost in the war. It, it wasn't just those. That may have been pivotal and formative, um, you know, in a sharper way. Uh, but but it wasn't the only loss that he experienced during those years. Um, 
And, and and like you say, and it, it's not all just about pain and loss, although that is the the often the most interesting thing to talk about. But like you say, he had fun times. He was a funny guy often. So it's good to to read about those experiences as well, I think, to get a full picture there, of the man. There's a point there's a point where he, he, he gets arrested um in but by the Oxford police. Um, and, uh, it, it, because of, I think being on the, the outskirts of some, uh, bit of trouble between students and townspeople in Oxford, which was a bit of a classic problem. Um, and a, a poli- policeman came up and said from behind saying, yeah, let's grab this little one. <laughs> because Tolkien was much, <laughs> he was a very small chap. You know, you see him in yeah. in lineups of uh, with, with his fellow rugby players, and he's he looks really small compared to all these very, beefy he's guys. Thin. You know? right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, a very thin man. So yeah, there's that. Um, and the other thing we were going to come to, of course, is that the the, the prospect of um, a revised edition of Tolkien and the Great War. It's it's certainly not something that's um, a, a, it's certainly not a certainty, um, but it's something I would hope to produce at some point in the next few years. Um, and there's another reason for this, um, apart from the fact that my my picture of how Tolkien first invented Middle Earth has become more clear. Um, it's that my understanding of when he wrote his original Lost Tales, his original Silmarillion stories, has changed, um, which which really changes the final chapter in Tolkien and the Great War. Um, in, in, in the established version, he comes back from uh, the terrible Battle of the Somme in 1916, writes four tales, the tale of the Fall of Gondolin, the tale of um, Beren and Luthien, uh, the tale of Turin the Dragon Slayer, and, and one other. And then he just doesn't do anything else until after the war. And then he writes the rest of the Lost Tales, which means the creation of the world, uh, the the establishment of the world by the Valar, you know, the captivity of Melkor, the uh, the Silmarils, all of that stuff. What I've discovered, and it's uh, it's something that I have uh, had published in uh, a wonderful book called The Great Tales Never End. Um, Essays in Memory of Christopher Tolkien, Tolkien's son. What I've discovered is that, um, that I've discovered evidence, very clear evidence that, that Tolkien was actually writing those other stories too during the First World War. So, and to me, that's really astonishing. So the, the great creation myth where the, you know, basically God and the music his angels the sing, the, sing the world into existence, the music of the Ainur, Ainu Lindale in Silmarillion, was was composed a few months after emerging from the Battle of the Somme. Um, uh, and then so too were, you know, the whole story of, of the arrival of the elves in Valinor and the Silmarils and so on. Um, so I, I think that's really, really stunning. And it, it, it's, I, I know that we need to wrap up, but the question I would have for you is, um, and that maybe some of our readers or listeners, <laughs> I, should, I should, well, hopefully readers for you as well, uh, would have, <laughs> the, the question is, to, to put it overly bluntly, and I apologize, but the question is, who cares? I mean, obviously I care. Uh, because I'm interested in the man's life and, and you care because you're interested in the man's life. But do you, what would you say to somebody who would ask, what, how, how does this affect, uh, you know, my enjoyment or our understanding of him? Who cares that he was writing during the war? How, how does this affect our consumption of Tolkien or does it? It's about, um, well, I suppose, I suppose I want people to care because I think it's actually a great story. I'm not talking about mm. Tolkien stories being great, though, of course, they are. But the, the fact that this, this man um, went from student to soldier to, you know, launching the beginnings of one of the greatest you know, works of literary endeavour of the 20th century, all in the space of, you know, very, very few years, 
um, is 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 extraordinary, um, and the the barriers he had to overleap to do it, and the the personal sorrow and um, resilience that are all part of that picture. Um, I, th I think it's I just think it's really powerful. I agree. And, and I, I apologize for the, <laughs> I feel like it was a rude question, but I was trying to get at something. Um, but I, I fully agree with you that there's something about the idea that, uh, that a man can go through what he did um, and, and, and come out with something to offer the world, something beautiful, something that, that isn't just death and misery and, uh, you know, endless questions about, you know, you know, why me, why us, why, why life, you know, uh, but that he was able to, to do something with that or around that. And, you know, we, we don't, thankfully, the vast bulk of us will never experience anything approaching what he did, but we go through our troubles in life. And, and having the example of a man who was able to do what he did, I think is inspiring or, or should be, or can be yeah. so, for, so, for so the rest of us as well. It's, it's, it is an inspirational story. And I think anyone who finds inspiration in the Lord of the Rings and in the story of those four friends who are separated on different battlefronts mm. um, and have to be resilient amid terrible sorrows, you know, um, it, it, it has something for, for, for those readers too, you know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, John Garth, uh, you've been very generous with your time and I, I very much appreciate that. Uh, the book, the, the book, hold it up again for us one more time. Um, that, uh, that that's coming out the new second edition, uh, Tolkien at uh, Exeter on, college. Just, <laughs> you've got a whole stack of, uh, so this is what, this is what everybody just, aspires to. My they, want, so they want to have to dig through a, a stack of their own books to find the right one and hold it up. Right. <laughs> Tolkien at <laughs> Exeter college, the second edition, it, this is, um, we're recording this, uh, quite a bit ahead of time, but, uh, it should be either out or very close to it the second edition. So people should take a look at that. Um, and, and it's available from my, on, my, on my website, basically. On first. the website. Yes. Which, um, yeah. John Garth dot co dot UK. Um, so head there, check it out, please, um, support Mr. Garth and uh, his efforts, because I feel like you do a great service to the rest of us. Uh, Tolkien, um, uh, appreciators so to speak um you, you do a wonderful service for us and i really appreciate it and very much appreciate you coming on well i'm i'm, I'm glad that you would have me thank you so much <laughs> <laughs>